All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, we'll be in verses one through eight this morning. I'm Cameron, I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church, and no, I don't normally wear a tie. Uh, My grandmother just always said, when you have visitors, you ought to gussy up a little bit. So that's what I did in honor of her. And no, I don't support Clemson, given the colors of said tie. I've already been uh, at Starbucks this morning. I was like, love that tie, national champions, woohoo. I was kind of confused, but then I, I caught up in the curve. Um, and so as we're wrapping up the gospel of Mark uh, this morning, as we have looked at the passion narrative of Christ, um, we find ourselves at the tomb. And uh, hopefully you, for those of you who've been with us on the journey, you remember some of the distance that we've covered And that the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that he was emphasizing throughout is really not the failure of the disciples just by itself, but actually the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God to continue to bear with his people even when they fail. Now, how important a message is that for us today? That we would continue to be told again and again and again, though you you will not get this right between the now and the not yet in full, You will never be perfect apart from Christ's glorifying, finished work in you. God remains faithful. He continues to do what he said he would do. He continues to love and pursue his people. And that is good news for us, especially for those of us who at times found ourselves in great darkness and for those of us who who struggle with doubt on occasion or struggle with our own failings on occasion. And so my hope for all of us this morning is that what we will walk away with ultimately is that God is faithful and that Jesus is in fact risen indeed, which gives us the opportunity to do things that we could never do apart from his resurrection, to have an impact in the world on things that we could never do without the beauty and the power and the glory of Christ's resurrection. And so um, the more that I go, the more uh, that I find that that is what it hinges on. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, listen, if Christ doesn't rise, we among all are the most foolish of men. We have no good news. We have no hope at all, right? And so if, if Christ didn't rise, this whole story essentially is for naught and we don't have the hope that we would love to have. But what we do know is that he is risen, and he is risen indeed. And because he is risen indeed, we too are resurrected beings and can rise as well and will rise in the new heavens and the new earth. And one of the reasons that we read that Second Peter passage is to remind us, in the assurance of pardon, to remind us that this time between the now and the not yet is not God tarrying. No, it's God being patient with us, his people, so that we could grow in newness of life, so that we could grow in the power of the resurrection and the family could continue to get bigger. That is God's great desire. And so his desire is that we would evidence that resurrection and that we would live in such a way that people say, what is it that is different about you? What is it that, that makes you who you are? What is it that, that draws me to you? And so as we enter into this text this morning, um, let's keep in mind all that has come before. Mark, like the other gospels, there's no actual description of the resurrection. There is no description of where Christ goes. My daughter sent us a text message yesterday. It's funny. She sent it to Susan's phone, but Susan says, your daughter has a text message for you. I'm like, but it's your phone. (laughs) She's like, no, you, you handle the where did Jesus go when he died stuff. 
And so, <laughs> and so I, I answered her as, as, as best those of us who look through a glass half darkly can do. Um, it doesn't tell us in Scripture in full. There's that one very controversial passage in Peter that Martin Luther says, what a glorious passage that I have no earthly idea what it means. And so, um, so, but Mark doesn't give us those details. What he does give us is very important because it's actually him inviting us into the resurrection story. And the question is, how will we respond? So uh, the thing that I would ask you, because we all do this, right? We all share stuff with each other. We share videos and we share pictures and we share quotes and we share movies and we share shows and we share all kinds of things with one another. But my question is, what is it, a, what is it about those stories or that show or that movie that compels you to share it with someone else? What, what is it? What is kind of the hallmark? What is the, the, the litmus test for you to say, I really think I need to share this with someone else? Because we all do it, right? We all are compelled. You've got, you, you, you've, we've all said this. You've got to see this. You've got to watch this. You've got to read this. You've got to hear this. So what is it that compels us to share those kind of things and an even better question <clears throat> is, to kind of con- is for you and I to consider of the things that we share, what message is going out and going forward? What is it telling people about us and who we are? Because it is a reflection of us, right? And so why do we share those things? And even probably a better question, and why are there certain things that we don't share? Maybe we don't share the power of the resurrection because we don't see it in and of ourselves because we're not experiencing it in full because we, we're struggling to see it as it is breaking in all around us. My hope for us is that when the sermon ends, you will have hopefully a better perspective and see that more you are actually involved in and witnessing more of the resurrection than you thought possible. So that you actually do have something profound to share, just maybe you're overlooking it, thinking that it needed to be grander. The resurrection is a very, as, as, as miraculous as it is as an event, its impact is insanely mundane and quotidian. It's just everyday type stuff. But do we have the eyes to see it? So let's read verses one through seven and see the empty tomb and a risen Savior. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. 
So again, we have the three women named. This is the third time in a very short section of Mark that these women are named. And so that should stand out to us. Why would Mark feel compelled to keep saying their names over and over? Well, the reason uh, that has been put forward, and I think is correct, is that he was wanting to make sure that their testimony would be received. See, in their culture, the testimony of a woman was not accepted. You were to be tried on the testimony of two men, but women's testimony meant nothing. And so for these three women to go back and share and say, no, Jesus is risen, in the broader scheme of things, probably would not have been accepted. They would have been uh, probably discounted as emotional. Um, does this, any of this sound familiar? Um, and so, so it's important that we recognize that even here, Jesus is beginning to deconstruct cultural norms and mores and show value. Again, remember in the Gospel of Mark, one of the great values is that those who are outsiders by cultural distinction are actually truly kingdom insiders. And that those who think they're insiders by either blood right or birthright or some other right other than Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, they in fact will find themselves to be outsiders. So Mark is showing great honor to these three women who have been given the great gift of being able to witness the crucifixion, to be able to witness the miracles of Jesus, to be able to witness to the resurrection. He's showing them great honor and glory by naming them. And that's something that we should take heart to. We, in our day, ought to ask the question of our spheres of influence. Who is it in our spheres of influence who is marginalized, who is considered out by all cultural purpose? And ask the question, do we have any entree or impact that we can have upon them relationally? Right? He knows their names. He knows who they are. He knows who their kids are. So how could we begin to think about where we, not, not distant lands that you have no access to. It's not a bad thing for you to consider and pray for Syria or the Coptic Christians in Egypt who just suffered a horrific terrorist attack a couple of weeks ago during their church service. Do pray for them, don't get me wrong. But I do think that we need to be present more and more where we are and ask the question of our current circumstances, whether it's where you work, whether it's where you live, whether it's where you play, where within your current, con where you go to school, any of these kinds of things, who is it that is being marginalized that the gospel would be a, a, a phenomenal breath of fresh air to them? And begin to pray and ask the Spirit to show you how to exemplify the resurrection to a people who so desperately need it. So few people choose to be marginalized just flat-footed. But sometimes when they find themselves there, it's kind of the empire strikes back, right? They, they come roaring back against the, the forces of oppression, and then they just repeat the same mistake when they find themselves on top once the wheel rolls around. But while they're in the position of marginalized, how are we showing them, evidencing to them the gospel? So these women are named so that their testimony could not be easily done away with. Now, they come because they're interested in uh, anointing the body of the dead Jesus. They come seeking the dead. Their focus is upon the dead. But if you remember, Christ had already been anointed. 
Remember? Mark 14, when he's at Simon the leper's house in Bethany, and the woman comes in and risks all that she has to uh, use this expensive bottle of nard. It was a year's wages worth, and she pours it out on Jesus. And you, you remember the disciples were wrestling in and of themselves. We could have sold that to the poor. And Jesus, if you remember, turns to them and says, the poor are with you always. You always have an opportunity to love the poor and the marginalized. Why is this a unique circumstance? No, what she has done is prepare me for burial. I'm going to die. So they come to do something that had really already been done and may have actually been done by one of them if the other gospels hold. It may have been Mary Magdalene that did it in the first place. So they come and they're, they're trying to anoint and honor Jesus. And as they're coming, they realize who is going to roll away this stone? And as they look up, they see it had been rolled away. The way it is written, and notice that Mark repeats it, it was a very large stone. And so what he's indicating is that God alone moved that stone. That it was no man that could open the tomb of Jesus to let him out. It had to be God who would roll away this very large stone to release his son from the bonds of sin and death. So even in this, we see the hand of God at work and the hand of man is not able to accomplish what only God can accomplish. And so they go into the tomb, which you have to imagine would have taken some courage, right? To, to see this large stone rolled away and these three women just go on into the tomb. I, I imagine it would have taken some measure of, of, of courage to want to see what had happened. So as they come in, Remember, there's a young man in a white robe, which usually in Scripture is indicative of an angelic messenger or a divine messenger. And their response to him indicates that this was not just some ordinary human being, right? They immediately were alarmed to see this man sitting there. And he does what oftentimes angelic messengers do. He says, it's okay. Don't be alarmed. I've got good news for you. He says, that which you seek among the dead is, he is not here. He is risen and he is risen indeed. He has done exactly what he said he would do. Remember, Jesus promised, even in the midst of all the bluster that was going on, you remember, Peter swore, even if those other 11 doofuses fall away, this guy, this guy will die with you. Right, let's just see if you can pray for an hour, Peter, before you go trying to get killed. Remember what Peter did, right? He failed three times over, even in trying to pray for an hour much less going and getting himself killed. And you also remember Peter denied Jesus three times, even after he'd been warned, even after he heard the cock crow the first time. It didn't stop the train that was headed down the tracks, which was the destruction of Peter's pride. And so Jesus, in the midst of all that, promised and said, listen, even though you will be wrecked, according to prophecy, even though the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And so the man in the tomb says, go and tell them that Jesus has done what he said he would do. He will meet you there. Meaning that Jesus was resurrected and they were restored. And notice who he singles out. What a beautiful picture of restoration. He singles out Peter. He says, tell them and Peter. Make sure that Peter knows that his sin does not have the final say. Make sure that Peter knows that his Savior is risen and risen indeed, and he will be restored. Whatever you do, get him to Galilee so he can see the risen Lord. 
so that he would not dwell in his own brokenness and sin. And what kind of message does that say to you and I? Remember what we said about Peter's uh, mistake. I don't know that any of us, for, for as long as we will travel through history, I don't know that any of us can make a bigger mistake. I don't know that any of us will ever have the opportunity to deny the Lord. In fact, I know we won't. We will never have the opportunity to, to look away as Peter did. And yet Peter was restored, showing the great grace of our Lord. Now, as we've said here often, it's not cheap grace, right? Remember, this was incredibly costly to Jesus. Don't forget how, how much Mark focused on the mockery aspect of his crucifixion and how much he focused on the suffering of Jesus through the whole process, right? He was struck and told to prophesy. I don't know if you know me very well or not, but striking me unknown and asking me to prophesy doesn't draw my affections. And I know for many of you, if I ripped out some of your facial hair just without saying anything, probably it's not going to endear you to me either. And yet Jesus took it all to pay it all. And even in Gethsemane, when he begged the Lord, may this cup pass from me. Think about that. That wasn't just for effect. It wasn't. It wasn't theater. It was Jesus in great anguish. And yet he said, for the joy that has been set before me, I will endure the shame of the cross so that many would come to know you, Lord. So the family could get bigger. I will endure. Not my will, but your will be done. And so he's endured all that so that the mistakes that the people of God make do not have the final say. Now, the resurrection is a declaration that God doesn't just save you to leave you as you are, right? We can, we can come to Jesus as we are, but are we, are we allowed to remain that way? No, the resurrection is the, the aspect of salvation or the, the, the whole process of redemption that declares, no, you will be transformed into the image of Christ between the now and the not yet. It is the process that we call sanctification, or you could use the term maturation. We should be growing as God's people and better reflecting the fruit of the resurrection as we go through our lives. It should never be stated that, that you getting saved is, is just some sort of fire insurance, that you are never to change, that God's grace, he just continues to just like an old granddad, just continues to bestow his love upon you. No, he is a father who disciplines his children. Yes, Hebrews tells us that. And why does he discipline us? Because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to stay where we are because it doesn't mean that he loves us more or less. But what it does mean is that we suffer in our understanding of his love more and less. Now, keep in mind, we're going to spend an eternity chewing on all this. We will spend an eternity taking great joy in the fullness of who God is and all that he has done. So there's more to it than just some simple math. It is something that goes on, and I, I've said this before, I've been a Christian for a number of years, 17, 18 years or so, and it is as fresh to me today as the first day, and certainly as I've been studying and thinking about the resurrection, it has been just, uh, it's just been beautiful to my own heart and soul.
and to think about how did Jesus do what he did? And, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the resurrection part. But though these women are focused purely on death, the angelic messenger says, no, go to where there is life. Death has been defeated. Death is arrested. This is the first time that they are actually commanded in the book of Mark to go and say something. If you know anything about the book of Mark, and actually the other gospels as well, so frequently Jesus will say, don't say anything. Now, people didn't listen to him then, just like we don't listen to him now. When we're told not to say something, we say something. We're told to say something, we don't say anything, right? I mean, that's kind of the Romans 7 struggle a bit, right? And so, so in Mark, this is the first time they're actually told, now go and share. Now, that's an interesting time to tell them to now go and share. Why would he previously have told them not to go and share? What had not yet happened? Well, they had not yet seen the cross, They had not yet seen the power and the glory that comes with the crucifixion of Christ and the taking away of shame and guilt, and they had not yet seen the empty tomb. See, it's a a half-baked story without the fullness of the cross and the resurrection. It could be just a, a nice religious story or some parable without the fullness of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So now they have something to go and share. Listen to what James R. Edwards, New Testament scholar, says about this passage. The announcement of the angel is not one of deserved blame, but a promise of gathering and going before them. Did you hear that? He doesn't say, go and tell those sorry disciples that they got all this wrong and they ain't worth a flip. And if I were going to pick a team, it wouldn't be this bad news bears. I draft better. No, he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, no, go and tell them that Jesus has risen and risen indeed, which changes everything. So he says, the announcement of the angel is not one of deserved blame, but a promise of gathering and going before them. God completes his plans for the church despite human failure. If the word of grace from the resurrected Lord includes a traitor like Peter, Readers of the gospel may be assured that it includes those of their community who have also failed Christ. That's hard for us sometimes, and as we have walked through this, we had you raise your hands on whether or not you've ever been betrayed, and the whole room, all the hands just about went up. And we also had you consider, have you ever betrayed anyone? And again, if we're honest, we've all betrayed somebody, and again, thinking through how in the world can community ever rise out of a group of betrayed betrayers like us? Well, that's where the resurrection comes in. It's where the power of the Holy Spirit comes in. This is miracle for us to gather and do this. It's miraculous because there's really, if you were to think about it too much, you wouldn't be here. And then we talked about forsakenness. How many of you felt forsaken? We didn't ask you to raise your hands on that one. That one's a little more personal. Probably about the same, actually. Um, But we've all been forsaken, and we've all forsaken someone. And the question that kind of stands before us here is, in a sense, if we were to ask the question, how many of you have ever been hurt by either the church or someone representing the church? My suspicion is a grievous number of hands would be raised. 
And so, this message to us is powerful. That despite human failings, God continues to fulfill his promises to his church and to provide a remnant. If you study church history at all. In fact, this was one of the most interesting moments to me in seminary. It was actually in the study of church history that I really came to a place of assurance and belief that the church might be worth being a part of. Right? And what's interesting about it is it was actually reading about the darkest moments in the history of the church. If you read anything about the church in Europe in the in the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, and you could probably keep going, it's not pretty. And you wonder, why? Why would anybody ever go to church again after all this? If you read anything about the church in the South during the season of the Civil War and slavery and Reconstruction, why? Why would anybody ever go to church after tasting of that? If you know anything about the church in the 80s and how it treated a very marginalized group of people, it makes you wonder, why do we gather? Not to mention the things that we let continue to go on without even firing a shot or saying a word. The things we do get loud about and the things that we remain silent on. They're dialectically opposed. It doesn't make sense sometimes. And yet, and yet, God continues to make sure that his bride continues to have opportunity to flourish and thrive and that the family can continue to grow bigger despite the worst of what we've thrown up against the wall. This this resurrection is such good news to us that, that Jesus would go ahead and meet a group of men who had failed him so miserably to pronounce over them forgiveness and newness of life. He offers us the same Now, I want you to know, I genuinely wrestle with whether or not to wear a tie this morning. Now, some of you won some money on it, and I expect you'll give it to the poor. (laughs) Otherwise, it's blood money. Uh, (laughs) Now, the reason I wrestle with it is because why is this Sunday any different from next Sunday? Why is this Sunday any different than last Sunday? Because, because the truth of the matter is, for the church, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday we gather not to, not to celebrate merely the death of Christ as if he did not raise. We gather together to celebrate the resurrection, the ascension, and the coming again, the fullness of redemption. So in a sense, I feel a, a tad bit fraudulent dressing up just for this day. So now you may be wondering, well... Is it ties from here on out, Cameron? I like wearing ties. It's fine, but I don't want you to be confused. This means nothing. What Jesus has done means everything. And if you're visiting with us this morning, and this is maybe the only time of year that you come to church, I want to encourage you, don't let this be it. Because every Sunday is worthy of celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Every Sunday is worthy of celebrating the fullness of the goodness of God's forgiveness to us, his people. Every Sunday is, in fact, a miraculous gathering. So, here's my question to you. What are some ways in which you have specifically benefited from the resurrection of Christ? What are some ways, and if you've never thought about it, you should. 
you should specifically think about what, is it, what does it mean to me that Christ is risen? Because again, that's Paul's, it all hinges on that for Paul. He, he boils it all the way down to that. He said, if he doesn't rise from the dead, we are the most hopeless and silly of all men. So how has the resurrection benefited you? For me, the, the resurrection being what it is, it gives me great hope um, I often look at the world, I look at local circumstances, um, and it's sometimes it's, I gotta be honest with you, it's hard, it's hard to explain some things. I don't know if you saw in the news uh, the story of the little boy who died at, in the restaurant in Atlanta, the rotating restaurant, he got his foot caught. How does that happen? Why? Or even, for those of you who know anything about football, Ravens tight end, Todd Heap, who's a believer, um, ran over his own three-year-old daughter in his driveway. Why? Why, Lord? Those are, and we could go on and on and on. A number of things that, that, that if, if we're paying attention to the world at all, that we have to stop and go, either, are you there, Lord? Or, come, Lord Jesus. And yet he tarries, not because he is slow, but because he's patient. And he's kind and he wants for the family to grow larger and larger. And somehow, those awful things that happened will be leveraged for his sovereignty and his good. And, and it has to be supernatural because I can't do the math from here. I can't. And so, what the resurrection means for me is that those things are not the final say. That, that really, life in a fallen world, I'm not sure why more bad things don't happen given the fallenness of this world. Um, I had a conversation with someone just a day or so ago, uh, just talking about just struggling with, uh, just struggling with anxiety and, and things in the world. And, and my statement was, well, really, we should probably spend a lot more time in gratitude because why doesn't worse happen? Why does anything good at all happen? Why are any of us healthy given the nature of things in this world? And so what, how might it change us? How might the idea of the resurrection change us so that we become a people of much greater gratitude? And that's, the resurrection has done that for me because I am quite naturally a cynic and a doubter. Now you may be thinking, well, who made him a pastor? Well, hopefully God did. And I, and, I, and I trust that he did because those things don't haunt me like they once did at all. And as I've meditated on the resurrection this week, it's been sweeter and sweeter to me. I don't have all the answers. But what the resurrection does is give me hope that one day the answer will return and make all things new. Let's look back at the text, the last verse, verse eight. And they, being the three women went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now it's interesting that Mark ends with yet another failing of the disciples. Right? These women had been with him as disciples. They had been following along. They had seen lots of things and when they were commanded to actually go and share they seize up and are afraid. Now, does the Bible end right here? No. That means at some point they talked. 
but they didn't right then. They were disobedient. So the, the, the story continues. If the Bible were to end right here, we'd be in trouble. But it doesn't. It goes on, right? And so we do know that at some point they did, uh, in obedience, say something, but initially they did not. Their minds were racing with fear and awe. They couldn't even begin to comprehend what was going on. They had been so focused on the death of Jesus that the resurrection of Jesus was mind-bending to them. They didn't even know how to communicate it. And this also teaches us that Jesus' resurrection does not automatically set everything to right. And what does that mean? It means that we still live in a fallen world and we are still perfectly capable of messing up. And we will sometimes speak when we shouldn't and be quiet when we should speak and that we will not always get it right between the now and the not yet. But the point is not our perfection because your perfection is already promised in the glorification of Jesus. What you've been set free to do is live out the beauty and the fullness of the power of the resurrection between the now and the not yet. Now, I do have a question that I would like for you to raise your hands on if you, in fact, have this spiritual gift. Let me say this. It's not a trick question. It's a straight question. How many of you would say you have the gift of evangelism? Two, three, four, eh, wavering. Uh, so four people in the room. Let's just, let's round up to 10. I'm going to round up to 10. Now, why do I, I'm just for the sake of those who are like, I'm not real sure. Now, why do I ask that question? Because how we oftentimes hear a passage like this, this go and tell type passage, is we all immediately think that it's our job to go and verbally communicate the gospel to everybody we know, right? We either got to go buy us a bullhorn or a stack of tracks or something of that nature. And that would be a misunderstanding because as you saw, only a handful of people in this room actually feel they have the gift of evangelism. Now, did I just let you off the hook and say that you don't have to share the gospel? No. And if you thought so, you were wrong. But Jesus loves you. You do have to share the resurrection. But how? Is the sharing of the resurrection in word only? What does John say in 1 John? No, it is word and deed, right? Now, Paul breaks down the gifts and the body parts in uh, 1 Corinthians 12. We're not going to take time to go through those, but each of you has different gifts, spheres of influences, and opportunities that others of us do not have. Now, let me, I want to evidence to you that I see many of you actually evidencing the power of the resurrection. And the power of the resurrection, just so you know, is that there is hope, Right? That there can be newness of life, that sin does not have the final say, that death is not the end, that there is a new dawn that will someday come and there will be a last funeral and there will be a last tear shed and there will be a last broken song sung, last lament. So what's interesting is, uh, I won't call you out in full, but there's one of you in here who taught a class on the mitochondria. Anybody know what a mitochondria is? When you, that's this person teaching a class on the mitochondria, there was a person sitting in that class who was not yet sure of their faith who said, that guy believes in Jesus. I can tell by the way he talks about the mitochondria. 
So what does that indicate to us? That one, as just a, a base, there are ways in which we can do our jobs. Remember, we are high on vocation here at Christ Community Church, and I don't think that my vocation is the highest. In fact, you have access to more non-believers than I do. When I was a physical therapist, I was able to share the gospel a whole lot more than I am now because people see me coming. As soon as a cat comes out of the bag that I'm a pastor, the conversation changes. Now, just so you know, I don't wear this name badge everywhere. <laughs> but it comes up at some point, right? And they immediately, if they've cussed, they apologize. <laughs> I grew up in a trailer park. I'm probably going to be okay. Right, so, so you have where you are in the various circumstances, opportunities to evidence the resurrection via your vocation, unlike any, to leverage that would be powerful. Many of you are teachers, uh, both in terms of public school and in terms of private school and Christian school and homeschool. You are, by teaching just the truth of God's good world and the way in which you communicate it and teach it, some of you have more liberty than others. You are evidencing the resurrection. There's one of you who actually evidences the resurrection in the way that you sell homes. You're a real estate agent. And Susan and I had a home fall through. I think he was more upset about it than we were. Not because he's not going to get his pay on it, but because he's invested. And to have someone who's that invested in something and to fight for you and know that they have you covered, even when you sometimes question their decisions, it's powerful. That's a, a, a comforting thing. There are those of you who are in the medical profession. And how you do what you do is amazingly powerful. You get to stand in places that you probably should take your shoes off if you knew where you were standing. Now don't, because it's not sanitary and OSHA violations, right? Don't, get in, don't say my pastor said, I can take my shoes off. But you, you get to stand in some places that are profound. People that are suffering and need to know that their loved one is going to be cared for because they're in a place that there's nothing they can do. They feel helpless and hopeless. There's some of you fly airplanes, and thank you for doing it well. And thank you for caring about the people who are on board. Uh, none of you fly for United Airlines, so I'll just, <laughs> we don't worry about that aspect. But there are so many ways in which we can evidence the power of the resurrection in doing what we do. So there's some of you who are amazing cooks. And if you've ever been to the home of an amazing cook, it speaks to something deep within us. And remember how many times meals play into the power of the gospel. Even how you invite people into your home and your hospitality speaks to the power of the resurrection. Because it gives hope and it speaks to something that matters and it shows that we care about other people. And there are those of you who do all sorts of things in this world through your vocation. You are engaging with people and how you do what you do matters. I got a text message uh, a couple days ago. Um, from, uh, you know what? It made me emotional. Um, from two guys that I'd worked with for years as a physical therapist. And it was very humbling. Um, Steve's one of the best men I've ever met. He just, he, he loves his family as well as anybody I know and loves uh, his wife incredibly well and was one of the most conscientious 
uh, therapy people I've, I've ever been around. And he, he just was saying, hey, man, I, I just want you to know I, I, I miss you guys. Y'all were the best people I'd ever worked with, and it's changed my life. And at the time, I don't know that I thought a whole lot about it. And what made me, you know, I turned to Susan. I said, I, I wish I'd been more present. I wish I'd have been more aware. I wish I had known what I know now. And yet, God in his glory used the pitiful offering that I had to affect these people's lives. And so you are being watched in what you do and you are evidencing something. Everybody's got an opinion about you. They just do. You may not have the fortune to stand before as many people as I get to stand before and have that many opinions about you splayed about, but you have people who have opinions about you. Your neighbors, actually, that you've never met have opinions about you. How you keep your yard, right? You can evidence the power of the resurrection just by being mindful of your neighbors. Susan, who's a radical introvert, has developed this wonderful relationship with this woman named Myra across the street We've had the opportunity to pray for her. We've had the opportunity to pick her up off the floor when she fell and couldn't get up. We've had the opportunity just to love on her. She loves Susan. And Susan's an introvert who's not going to call you very much. I'm sorry. She don't call me very much. And when I do call her, she wants to get off the phone as fast as she can. So don't take it personally. But I want you to know that that. How we live our lives has a profound impact, but you've got to be aware. You've got to actually be present. So often I think we're in such a hurry to get from A to B or, or you know, just push the hands of the clock along that we're not considering all of the people that are around us and what they may need. Now, I'm not saying you've got to be aware of... You're not. Listen, remember your finiteness and what I'm about to say. You can't save everybody. You can't engage everybody. But what you can do is ask the Lord whom he would have you to engage, where you should invest your time, limited though it is, and to ask where are things opening up? Where are the possibilities? It was a prayer that I prayed often in physical therapy, and he always answered it beautifully, often strangely. There was one young lady in particular. I'd prayed that morning, Lord, give me an opportunity. She came in, and uh, she'd been in a very bad car accident, had multiple surgeries on her arm, and she said, I am angry at God, and I hate him. Oh, okay, well, that's no warm-up. Let's just jump right in. Now, what you don't know about her is she had been um, sexually abused by every man who had been a part of her life from the age of 3 to 10. And so, what do you say to that person? How lightly should one step into such hallowed ground? So I began to pray. Lord, if you want me to say anything to her, you got to give me something because anything I'm going to say, she's going to shoot down quick and she ought to. And so, I said what I felt like the Lord gave me to say to her. I said, Dana, I don't know why. The Lord didn't send a legion of angels and slaughter those men, stop their hearts in their chests, do something horrible to them. I don't know why he didn't. I can't answer that. But here's what I do know. You didn't make it this far by yourself. He said, you're right. And I do know that if you are willing to offer up your broken cup, you can walk into a room full of women who've endured what you've endured, or even men, 
and say things I cannot say. But the question is, are you willing to offer up your broken cup? Now, what you need to know is she left without saying a word. I didn't think it went very well. I thought I'd probably get in a lot of trouble at some point. Well, she came back the next time she was scheduled, and she said, I'm not mad at God anymore. I feel that this can have purpose, and it doesn't have to be meaningless. And so, it was just a powerful moment that taught me, one, to show dependence upon the Holy Spirit because there's always something in our midst that's worth evidencing and engaging. There just is. Notice how Jesus did what he did in the, the three short years of his 30 to 33 or 30 to 38, however you want to frame all that out. But in the time that he really purposefully went about his ministry, one of the beautiful things is everywhere that he went, he was incredibly present. He wasn't distracted. You may say, yeah, but he didn't have an iPhone. <laughs> Fair, okay. But notice he was always aware of how people were doing around him and what they needed. And you too can have that kind of awareness. You too, in the power of the Spirit, can become an agent, an ambassador of reconciliation who doesn't have to have the gift of evangelism. You just have to have the gift of being willing to say, I'm sorry you're going through that. Let me pray for you. You have to have the gift and the willingness to be present to ask how they're doing or follow up. It's amazing to me how following up makes such a tremendous difference because what does it tell people? You matter to me. I care about what you're going through. And if you don't know this, this is in short supply in this world. I got enough problems of my own. Be worrying about my neighbor. I have problems at my house trying to raise my kids without trying to raise those little crazy kids up the street, right? That's us. We oftentimes are more concerned about our own junk and forget your junk's been taken care of. The cross took care of all your guilt and shame and the resurrection says that you will rise to newness of life. It doesn't have to, it doesn't define you. You are free from that. You are an eternal being. The clock has stopped for you. You don't chase the clock anymore. Yes, you will more than likely, if Jesus doesn't come back first, die one day. But your death will not be final. You will be liberated from this broken world. And so for those of us who are not having to chase the clock, who have been given all of the spiritual and heavenly blessings, let us display them in the manner and means in which God has gifted and called us right where we are. Please do not hear me say that you need to add anything to your life other than awareness. You need to just become aware. Brokenness is all around you. God has this amazing gift of putting his people in places where they are needed. He does it all the time. And the question is, are you aware of where you are and who needs you? So for us, we too have been commanded, go and tell them. But we get to go and tell, no, Jesus is coming back again. We're not going to Galilee. Jesus is coming back. And as we read from 2 Peter, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And all things will be made new. Every tear will be taken away. Do you think that that matters to the people in Syria? That someday this war will end. They've been fighting for centuries. We've been fighting each other for centuries. We kill almost as many people per year in our own country as die in these foreign wars. Did you know that? 
Chicago, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Jacksonville. The war is here too. People live in just as bad a conditions, sub-third world, all throughout this United States of America, just as they do in other places. People are marginalized and broken here just like they are everywhere else. Are you aware? Are you aware of where the Lord in his sovereignty has placed you and how he has gifted you and how you get to uniquely display beautifully the power of the resurrection? I don't think I have the gift of evangelism. And I know that may not shock very many of you. Like a prime example, a friend of mine, Chris Vogelsong, who, um, who planted Mountain City Church, he and I were at a Starbucks next to um, Church of the Apostles where RTS used to meet. And a lady sat down next to me, she and her child, and I said this. I said, hey, how you doing? Not, hey, how you doing? I just said, hey, how you doing? She like pulled the kid closer, like pulled her purse. <laughs> like, okay. Chris comes up. Chris goes, hey, how you doing? Balloons go off, pop guns, a party breaks out. Suddenly we're having this great conversation. I'm like, really? What in the world? I've seen it time and again. It happens even at the coffee shop I've been going to for years. They just recently learned my name as if it was like a, a, a scare, like, don't, don't get too close to him. He orders the same thing every time. Don't worry about his name. <laughs> so finally, I, I crossed some sort of imaginary barrier and they now talk to me. Uh, even though I've tried. There was a girl in the morning. She, she, she would be so sour to me. And I thought, I'm not, I'm not, I'm like super conscientious. I tip well. Like, what is going on here? Like, she would, she would take my order. It'd be the same thing every morning. She'd, <sighs> Next guy would come up, hey, how you doing? I don't know what it is. It's a vibe, I guess. I, I don't, I've tried to wash it off. It doesn't go. But I'll tell you where I am gifted is if you're coming apart at the seams, if there's a place of deep sorrow, if there's a place of great brokenness, I, I tend to find my way there. And, and, and end up proving to be of some value. Now, I, I joke with Susan that I feel like sometimes I'm a utilitarian object that is in this glass case. It says, break glass only if needed. And for the love of God, put it back when you're done. Uh, and that's not entirely true. But, but I am gifted more at the long haul. I am much more gifted at stepping into these very difficult places and building long-term relationships. I am horrible at initial impressions, as many of you have discovered. Uh, and you may still be stuck there. I'm actually an all right guy, I promise. Uh, but I'm terrible at initial impression. I'm terrible at that. So I, I, if you struggle with the gift of evangelism, I am numbered among you. Like I feel like they'll, they'll probably call the police if I start talking about blood and death and crosses and stuff like that. But other people do have that gift. But... The Lord has been so gracious to give me so many opportunities to display the power of the resurrection and to witness it in so many of you. This is one of the places where I hope our church will continue to grow in being able to share with each other so that we can live in the truth and the power of the resurrection as a community of people who are betrayed, betrayers, forsaken, forsakers, and wounded by the church so that we show none of that has the final say. None of that gets to decide who we are. Christ alone decides who we are. So, listen to what David E. Garland says about the end of the Gospel of Mark. The ending touches on the problem that fallible humans must live with failure. 
The way of discipleship is not a triumphant procession through the world like a hot knife cutting through butter. It is a way pocked by personal failure after personal failure. It may seem that the gospel ends on a pessimistic note because Mark does not report that the women successfully fulfilled their commission. Mark's story, however, is not about the disciples' foolishness and failure. The gospel is about the power of God, which overcomes dysfunction and disaster. We know that Jesus' resurrection was proclaimed and is being proclaimed throughout the world, just as Jesus said it would. This means that God's will and Jesus' promise have been fulfilled despite human disobedience. So the question I would love for you to meditate on as you take, as we walk away from this service and we walk away from yet another holiday is what are some ways in which you are sharing the resurrection of Jesus with others to compel them to join us in God's reconciled family? And remember, it's not only verbiage. It's how you were doing what you were doing because everybody has an opinion about you. Everybody considers you and your life and how you live. And know that you are gifted and called to certain places. And that's beautiful and that is good. Take heart and take up what you've been given. And do two things. Proclaim that Jesus has risen indeed. And that we too are risen indeed. And that should compel others to join this reconciled and very broken and failed family. Amen? So as we walk away from yet another Easter, let us not move on from the resurrection, but recognize every Sunday we celebrate it. Next week, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit from John, uh, because it's uh, the thing that Jesus leaves us with as he is departing, as he goes uh, on the ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father. He says, I give you this gift. And we as Reformed folk struggle with the Holy Spirit a little bit. Now, if you're worried he might get loose next week, uh, I think we'll be okay. Uh, and so, so what we will learn from John is the real purpose of the Holy Spirit so that hopefully we will not be so shy about praying to him and calling for his power in our lives. And then after that, we're going to start the book of Hosea, and that'll carry us all the way through the summer. Um, and so you'll be receiving the devotionals. The de so listen to me. If you're going to be part of the Hosea series, the devotion will be critical. You'll need it. Uh, and it'll be helpful to you. We're actually this time going to do an introductory sermon. We don't normally do that, but I think it would be helpful for us to kind of take an overview of the book. We will make it through verse one, week one. Uh, and then after that, it'll be a chapter or so at a time. But uh, so, so look for that. And then we'll do the book of Colossians in the fall. So uh, I want to pray for us. Again, my hope is that you would not in any way, shape, or form hear that you don't have a gift and that you don't have the ability to show the power of the resurrection if you're not gifted for evangelism, you're already doing it, but the question is, are you aware of it? And will you now begin to leverage that in prayer and intentionality? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the risenness of Christ. We thank you that the tomb was empty. We thank you that you alone rolled away the tomb. We thank you for the words of the divine messenger who says, do not seek the living among the dead, but instead seek the living among the living. Help us to be those who evidence newness of life with how we work, how we parent, how we go to school, how we uh, treat our spouses, how we neighbor, how we play, how we worship. 
God, let it be an all-of-life reality for us that permeates because we are more aware of the fullness of the resurrection of Christ that it has invaded everything. And would we see more things a shimmer with the glory of God than what we've seen previously? May the resurrection mean more to us after this Easter than it has previously. Not because of anything I've said, but because what Christ has done and what the Spirit continues to do in this world fulfilling your promises. Thank you for being patient with us, your people. Thank you for wanting the family to grow larger. Help us to participate in a way that is meaningful and glorifying to you. God, help us to use our gifts and our spheres of influence to speak of the resurrection in both word and deed. Equip us your saints, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.